Well, if you've been at Evanston Bible Fellowship for a while, you know that we describe ourselves in, in a, a couple of ways. One of the ways we describe ourselves is a teaching hospital, where we give uh, young men and women opportunities to serve in the church, to find their gifts, and to use them, and to take those gifts and, and use them in other places as they move on. Um, another way we describe ourselves is as a church planning church. By God's grace, we've had the, the privilege of planning four churches uh, since 2010, and we're hoping to continue to do that. And I love the way these two concepts come together in our speaker this morning. Danny uh, has, is homegrown. He was a Northwestern student who served as an intern. Uh, he was a part of our missions committee. He was a, a missionary here with Evanston Bible Fellowship. He went to China for a period of time. He's back. And now he's a church planning resident with us. And we're exploring the idea of planning a church with him in the future. So we're very excited uh, for Danny to come and bring us the word. So Danny, please come. Bring us the word, and and uh, thanks for uh, being part of Evanston Bible Fellowship all these years. Thanks so much, Pastor John, and good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Some of you may be in town visiting family, so if that's you, welcome. We're, we're, we're glad that you're able to worship with us. This morning, uh, we're, we're taking a break from Song of Solomon. That's the book that we've been going through uh, recently. We're taking a break this week, and, and I get a chance to share with you what God has been teaching me recently. And I was going to start with a fun fact, but John already revealed my fun fact. Um, and it is that I lived in China for a year. Uh, so from 2014 to 2015, I, I packed up my bags and I moved across the ocean to a city in central China. And when I came back to America, people would often ask me, what was your favorite part about living in China? And while it was always tempting to say things like the food or uh, getting to know the people and the culture or the traveling that I was able to do, what truly was my favorite part about living in China was the lack of expectations. The lack of expectations. You see, I was so foreign that I could do just about anything, and it would either be shrugged off as me being some strange foreigner, or it would be seen as amazing because I was a foreigner. There was really no in-between. Like, I could walk up to a random person in a cafe and sit down with them and just start talking about Jesus, and maybe they thought that was totally weird, but it also, like, it didn't really phase them. Like, Oh, like this, maybe this is just something that foreign people do. I don't know. Or I could be walking down the street and, and people would kind of stare at me wondering why there was a foreigner walking down the street. But then they would stop me because they wanted to take a picture with me. Like they were just in disbelief that they were meeting a foreigner. Like it was almost celebrity status. And it was so freeing. When I, when I came back to America, when I moved back, I felt like I was back under a magnifying glass. Like, I knew all of the unwritten cultural rules. I knew how weird it was to sit down in a cafe with some random person and expect to have an hour-long conversation with them. Can you imagine if someone did that to you when you were in a cafe? I knew what topics of conversation were taboo. And nobody wanted to take pictures with me anymore. In China, it was the lack of expectations that gave me freedom. People thought I was either going to be entirely strange or entirely awesome no matter what I did, so I stopped worrying what they thought about every single move I made. 
I wasn't concerned with justifying myself before man. In America, it was, and sometimes still is, the overwhelming amount of expectations that felt suffocating. I was once again tempted to justify myself before man. I started to worry again what people thought of me. I started to try and make everyone happy for fear of their negative opinions, for fear of making people upset, for fear of making people uncomfortable, for fear of being that weird Christian. Being aware of people's expectations made it easier to live for their approval. I take all this data, this information that I know about our culture, and I filter all of my actions through it. And it becomes so easy to simply strive to meet man's standards. To focus on how I look externally instead of focusing on what is going on internally. And and this morning, we're going to see Jesus respond to some people who are living for the approval of man, much in the same way that I do. And we'll make three observations, three observations about our desire to live according to man's standards. But first, we're going to pray. So let's pray. God, I pray that um, you would just open our hearts to your truth this morning. God, I pray that um, as, we, as we read the scripture that um, we would be convicted of sin, Lord, and that we would see how, how glorious and gracious you are. And God, I pray that anything that I say um, that is untrue would be forgotten and anything that is true would stick in people's minds. So God, I pray that you would just, you would just guide our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're going to read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. So turn with me there to Luke 16, verses 14 and 15. And and let's actually stand as we read God's word this morning. Once again, we're in Luke 16, verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You may be seated. So since we're only in a couple of verses this morning, I want to start with some context just so you can fully understand uh, what Jesus is speaking to and what the Pharisees are responding to. So if you were to look back at the start of chapter 16, starting in verse 1, Jesus is sharing a parable with his followers, with his disciples. It's the parable of the dishonest manager, and you can read that, that full parable later if you want the full context. But it ends with Jesus teaching his disciples that they cannot serve two masters. Um, so let's just read verse 13 really quick at the end of that parable. It says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So it's essentially a teaching on idolatry. You can't have a master apart from God. And and specifically in this instance, money. Um, But when you try to serve two masters, whatever it may be apart from God, it's it's just not going to work. 
And, and as we enter into our text, our text today, we're going to see that the disciples were the intended audience for that parable, but that there were some eavesdroppers. The Pharisees were listening in. They were listening to what Jesus was teaching. So who were the Pharisees? Who, who were these people? The Pharisees were the religious teachers who prided themselves on their own personal righteousness. They believed that salvation was determined by how someone behaved in this life, and thus they were devoted to knowledge, morality, and religion. They sought the approval of man and the approval of God based on their outward appearance, the things they did and the knowledge they knew, while neglecting the state of their own soul. And this leads us to our first point. We are all Pharisees. We are all Pharisees. We, f- we first see evidence of the Pharisees' desire for man's approval at the start of verse 14. So let's take just at the start. The Pharisees who were lovers of money. And stop there. The Pharisees who were lovers of money. Now, this is a slightly confusing phrase because the Pharisees were not necessarily known for having great wealth. Like their claim to fame wasn't that they were rich. Um, and one, one scholar says that the phrase lovers of money, it doesn't necessarily indicate wealth, but rather that they neglect the poor for their own status. It's, it's not a statement condemning any amount of money they have. It's a condemnation of mixed up priorities. They were, the Pharisees were so obsessed with looking a certain way and meeting man's standard, man's expectation, man's image for a religious teacher that they neglected the true teachings of scripture. You see, this is really about more than loving money. It's about prioritizing what is on the hearts of man above what is on the heart of God. And if, and if you skip ahead to the beginning of verse 15, we see Jesus specifically calling out these mixed-up priorities. And, and he said to them, and Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. The Pharisees give alms. They do give to the poor. They do give of their money, but they do so to impress others. Instead of doing something to honor and glorify God, they're doing it to look good in the eyes of men. For, for you, this specific context, talking about the Pharisees' love of money, it may be spot on. This may be speaking directly to your love of money, that you are so concerned about what's in your wallet or, or what kind of car you're driving. But for some of you, this may be speaking to something else. It could read, who are lovers of man's praise? Or who are lovers of never making mistakes? Or who are lovers of tearing other people down? Or who are lovers of themselves? We are all Pharisees. Where are you prioritizing the heart of man over God? Where are you prioritizing your outward appearance over being faithful to what Scripture teaches? And, and how do the Pharisees respond to Jesus' teaching about God and money? So he teaches the parable, and we saw verse 13 about God and money. Now, how do they respond? Let's finish reading verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. So they heard all these things. They heard what Jesus just taught, and they ridiculed Jesus. They ridiculed him. This is them attempting to marginalize Jesus and belittle his teaching. They're trying to remove his legitimacy. 
Because this, this isn't the, their first time interacting with Jesus, and, it, and it's showing a gradual increase in their opposition to him. If you looked back in the previous chapter, chapter 15, the Pharisees are muttering to each other about Jesus' teaching. Here, they are openly ridiculing him. And later, they would start plotting to crucify him. It's always easy to dismiss the Pharisees as the villains of the Bible. Like, this puts them at a distance. We, we, don't, we don't relate well with villains. But in reality, how often do you, do you ridicule what Jesus teaches? Now, now, you may be thinking, like, of course I don't ridicule the Son of God. His words are perfect. I know that. Yeah, I think if we were to dig a little bit deeper, I think you could think of something. Sometimes ridiculing Christ's teaching looks like the Pharisees, an outright rejection of his commands. And, and this might be more common among non-believers, people who don't believe the Bible is true. Um, but there may be commands in the Bible that you can even think of right now that you disagree with. And, and sometimes ridiculing Christ's teaching is a lot more subtle. When you ignore Christ's teaching, you are ridiculing it. And I, I think this happens more when you get a command like, love your enemies. There may be some of you right now who hear that command and you know that command, but you still have relationships where you're harboring a lot of bitterness in your heart and you're just not quite ready to love your enemy. So you ignore the command. You'll get to it later when it feels better, but for now you don't need to worry about it. And I think another subtle way is through rationalizing Christ's teaching. I think this happens when you hear Christ's teachings, but you put endless caveats on it until it weakens the original meaning. So take, for example, a command like, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. The first thing that usually gets taught about that command is, well, this isn't literally telling you to cut off your hand, which has some truth to it. But more than that, it is absolutely calling us to fight sin by all means necessary. It's calling us to consider getting a dumb phone if we struggle with sexual sin on our smartphones. It's calling us to consider deleting our Facebook, our Instagram, our Snapchat if we struggle with comparing ourselves to others. It's calling us to consider ending a dating relationship if it's leading us away from God. When we rationalize Christ's commands, we are ultimately ridiculing what he is teaching. We are all Pharisees. Whether it's our, our mixed-up priorities when we justify ourselves in the eyes of man, or, or whether it's how we ridicule Christ's teaching, we are all Pharisees. And, and, we, and we don't like that. Like, I, don't, I know I don't want to be associated with the Pharisees. I don't want people in this church or people out in the world to know that I am a Pharisee. I want to look a certain way to man. And a lot of times— it's actually possible to hide from man. Like, it's possible to deceive man. I know a lot of people where I've done a pretty good job of looking a certain way, like they probably think I'm pretty perfect. But this is not possible with God. There is no hiding from God. We are all Pharisees, and God knows it. And this leads into our second point. God knows your heart. God knows knows your heart. So first, we are all Pharisees. Second, God knows your heart. So let's move on to the next verse in our text, verse 15. And he said to them, and Jesus said to the Pharisees, 
You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God knows your heart. And Jesus can say this with authority and with accuracy. He's not guessing because God knows the Pharisees' hearts. He perfectly knows their motivations. Now, as you think about ways you justify yourself before others, or maybe you justify yourself to yourself, you probably know your sin. You know your heart if you're really being honest with yourself. But you aren't even seeing the full picture of how much your heart values man's praise over God's. The only person who can fully see your sin is God. God knows the depth of your heart. He knows the depth of your sin. He sees your heart and he knows every time your motivation is selfish or your decision-making is tainted. You who are lovers of money, God knows your heart. You who are lovers of man's praise, God knows your heart. You who pursue godliness to impress others, God knows your heart. You who pursue godliness to impress yourself, God knows your heart. And how does Jesus feel about the things that man exalts? What does he say about man's standard, about the things that man highly values? Well, look at the end of verse 15. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He doesn't just dislike it, he abhors it. It is an abomination to him. It is offensive to him. These standards that men exalt are the antithesis to what God exalts. God knows your heart, and he knows that what you often exalt is worthy of his wrath and condemnation. God knows the depth of our sin, and he knows exactly how much we deserve separation from him. And and on the surface, this can seem hopeless. Like, this is a pretty hopeless sermon up to this point. The things of man that we are so naturally drawn to are despised by God. But we need a right view of our sin. As our view of sin increases, as we see the abomination it is in the sight of God, we see our need for salvation. This passage, it shows us the corruption that is in our hearts. It shows us a glimpse of the problem. But it is far from hopeless. As we see our great need for for salvation, we can also see the greatness of our Savior. And this leads to our third point. So first, we saw that we are all Pharisees. And and second, we saw that God knows your heart. And our third point, Christ died for you. Christ died for you. Now, for those of you who are not believers in Jesus this morning, I want to encourage you to pray and consider this last point as I go through it. If you have not turned from your sins and put your faith in Jesus for salvation, today is the day. Christ died for you, but you must receive him in order to be forgiven. And for those of you who are believers in Jesus this morning, I want you to hear this last point and and rejoice at God's goodness. Christ died for you. It has always amazed me that God can see the ugliness of my sin for what it really is and still desire to know me. Like if, if my sin looks any worse than what I already see when I look at my life, 
I don't know why God wants anything to do with me. Before I knew I was preaching, I was sitting at my desk, I was reading these verses in Luke, and simultaneously a song played in my headphones. The lyrics were, Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree, in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. The gospel is a mystery, a great, beautiful, miraculous mystery that a perfect God would desire to know and love ruined sinners. The same Jesus who condemns the hearts of the Pharisees in the midst of their ridiculing is the same Jesus who would later sacrifice his own body on the cross so that sinners like the Pharisees could be forgiven. While they plotted to kill him, he plotted to die for them, to die for us. Romans 5.8 says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were a Pharisee, Christ died for you. While you were justifying yourself in the eyes of man, Christ died for you. While you were an abomination in the sight of God, Christ died for you. And when you acknowledge your sins and you put your faith in Christ, not only do you receive forgiveness of sins, you also receive a new heart. If you are in Christ, when God looks at you, he no longer sees the depth of your brokenness. He looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees Christ's perfect heart in your place. And because of this fact, we can read a passage like today that God knows our hearts with great joy and a great sense of freedom. You are freed in Christ's love from the chains of man. You no longer need to prove yourself to your coworkers, your classmates, your parents, or yourself. You have already been given the approval of the one who matters most. You can find your identity in Christ, and you can know with confidence that you are infinitely loved and accepted. So what, so what do we do with this? How do we apply this to our lives? We run, and we rest. First, we run. Run after what God values. Run after what God values. Because we are already seen as perfect in Christ, it frees us to pursue the things God highly values because the justification of man has no bearing on us. The Pharisees, you see, they run after the things that man values, the things that will justify them in the eyes of man. But we run after what God values. We prioritize spending time with God every day, even though man tells us to satisfy whatever our flesh desires. We share the gospel, even though man tells us to keep our faith to ourselves. We love the poor and oppressed, not because we want to feel like good people and look like good people to those around us, but because God loved us first. We run after what God values. And second, we rest. Rest in your justification in Christ. Rest in your justification in Christ. The Pharisees were so caught up in justifying themselves in their own power 
But our confidence is no longer in our own performance and, and, and how we appear to others. Our confidence is in Christ, where we can now pursue good works and we can live our everyday lives pursuing the things that he values out of the knowledge of his love and not in the striving for it. We rest when we are tempted to worry about how we look or what our in-laws think of us or, or what our coworkers might gossip to each other after we share the gospel with them. We rest knowing that our hearts are hidden in Christ's. We run and we rest. Now, to wrap up today, I want, I want to go back to what I shared at the start and, and point out the great irony of living in China and feeling a freedom of expectations. And, and that is because the government has literally been watching and scoring citizens. As I was preparing for the sermon, I randomly, I saw an article posted on LinkedIn about a program that China has been developing since 2014. It's called a social credit system. And that means that while I was living there, I'll just read, I'll just read a brief description of the program from the article. Imagine a world where many of your daily activities were constantly monitored and evaluated. What you buy at the shops and online, where you are at any given time, who your friends are and how you interact with them, how many hours you spend watching content or playing video games, what bills and taxes you pay or not. It's not hard to picture because most of that already happens thanks to all those data-collecting behemoths like Google, Facebook, and Instagram, or health-tracking apps such as Fitbit. But now imagine a system where all these behaviors are rated as either positive or negative and distilled into a single number according to rules set by the government. That would create your citizen score, and it would tell everyone whether or not you were trustworthy. Plus, your rating would be publicly ranked against the entire population and used to determine your eligibility for a mortgage or a job where your children can go to school, or even just your chances of getting a date. Yikes. And right now the program is voluntary, uh, but people are actually lining up to get involved because they are in fear. Like they think that there will potentially be future benefits for opting in early. Because uh, in 2020, the plan is for the system to, to become mandatory. It's an official system for justifying yourself in the eyes of man. And it's easy to hear this and just be absolutely shocked at how appalling it is, because it is. Um, but I think it's interesting how closely it parallels a more informal system of evaluation and criticism that we live with in America, especially in a digital age, where you are constantly judged by your peers based on how you act on social media, by what you say in daily conversation, where you live, what brands of clothing you wear, where you edit and edit your Instagram and Facebook posts in order to get the most likes, where you double-check your hair 25 times in the mirror a day to make sure it looks just right, where people seem quicker to publicly belittle you because of an opinion you hold, or a dream you have, or an interest you have. So you change it so that people will applaud you. The list goes on and on. It's an unofficial system for justifying yourself in the eyes of man. As we close today, be encouraged that if you are in Christ, that you are not bound by these chains. Even in the midst of expectations from all around us, from our employer, 
from our families, from our friends, whether these are official expectations or unofficial expectations, you are no longer a slave to the fear of man. You are called instead to fear God. Yes, we are all Pharisees. We've mixed up our priorities and we put what man highly values above what God highly values. And yes, God knows your heart. He knows the depth of your sin. He knows that you often seek to justify yourself in the eyes of man. Yet while you are still a sinner, Christ died for you. Now run after the true joy found in obeying God's commands and rest in the fact that your heart has been cleaned. Let's pray. God, I pray that you which has convicted us of sin this morning, that you would show us the areas of our lives where we're trying to justify ourselves before man, that you would show us the areas of our lives where we are ridiculing what you are teaching. And God, that you would, you would raise our view of our sin, that we would know that our sin is in opposition to you, that we would see that, but that we wouldn't feel guilty about it or that it wouldn't just make us feel like failures, but that we would see your grace, that we would see how amazing you are because of how it contrasts with us. And God, I pray that you would help us to run after what you value and that you would help us to rest in the justification that we have already received in Christ. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.